On the show today, Dr. Gru Harlem Brundtland, a physician and politician and the former Prime Minister of Norway and former Director General of the World Health Organization. And with us is, of course, also Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. And today we'll talk about sustainable development, what that really is. So Gru, it's such an honor to have you here with us. In your native Norway, you are still affectionately known as the Landsmodern, the mother of the nation. So I'm just wondering, how does that make you feel? I've gotten used to it, of course, over the time. <laughs> But of course, I'm aware that uh, I am the first woman to be prime minister and I was prime minister for many years. So people got used to me. And they recognize you on the street today and salute you, or how is your Well, you know, experience? for many years I tried um, to have, after I had stopped my political time in Norway and became the WHO Director General, I had left for Geneva, and I was happy to be away from the kind of daily and hourly pressure from Norwegian journalists all the time on everything. And so it took some time. And I wanted to stay away from Norway because I wanted the new leaders of Labour Party to be the leaders and not all the time going back to what does Gro think. So that's why I stayed with my husband in Geneva for five years. And then instead of moving back home, we went to Nice in France to get to an airport that has direct flight to Norway, but where I am away from the pressure of the former leader. But People recognize me on the streets, but even, you know, people are careful. They try to avoid making a fuss about it. You know, I can see in their eyes that they know me. Some people nod, smile. Others, you can see they recognize, but they feel that when I'm in a private situation, they avoid, they understand that I also have a private life. So people are considerate. Looking back, let's reflect a little bit. I was thinking about one major achievement that you are known for as having chaired the World Commission on Environment and Development, known as the Brundtland Commission. And that in 1987 presented this report called Brundtland Report. And this report was a true, true milestone because for the first time, actually, the principle of this sustainable development was articulated at a global level. And it also led to the first Earth Summit. So what are your strongest memories and emotions linked to this creation of this report? When I was asked by the Secretary General to lead the commission, I said, you know, this is impossible. I am the leader of the Labour Party. I am the leader of the opposition in Parliament. I have more than a full-time job already. But then he said, you are the only environment minister to have become prime minister. And I knew he was right. I knew I couldn't come up with another alternative suggestion for him. So I realized, because I knew, how can we take care of the environment without taking it as part of a whole policy system of change? So I understood the fact that I had a broader background in looking at the whole of international and national politics was important. So that was an important event. I decided I have to try to do it. And it was tough over those years. And it was used by the opposition sometimes. She's leading Norway from the telephone box. You know, that was an example of what kind of criticism was raised by the Conservative Party. So it was tough. However, so there are emotions, of course, linked to all of that. 
But I knew I had to do it because I had no good alternative for the Secretary General. Then I said, this was supposed to be an environment commission. And I said, look, I cannot deal with the environment without dealing with development. I remember Indira Gandhi coming to Stockholm in 1972 saying, poverty is the greatest polluter. She didn't want to talk about the environment. She looked upon it as something that the Western world had realized and come to because now the development had come far enough in the Western countries, so they became concerned about the effect on the environment. However, what about us in the poor world? So I knew that if I was going to deal with the challenges of the changes globally, the changes that affecting the earth, all of what was in the mandate for that Environment Commission, I couldn't deal with it without putting it into a broad development economic policy context, which is why I named the commission Environment and Development. And I said, I need to have more than half of the members coming from the developing world. And that was important because we could analyze the real problems that every kind of part of the world was facing. I was convinced if this report is going to have an effect, it has to be a consensus report. I have to have all my 22 commissioners agreeing on the text and on our recommendations. You know, often you do the easy way out and you put a reference, somebody did not agree with this statement or this and that, then it has no effect really. So I had some really serious conversations with a couple of the commissioners before we could end up with a consensus document. And one of the things that really made it difficult, two things, one was religion. The crucial part about the rights of every person to decide on reproductivity, to have the right to family planning. We didn't want the earth to be overwhelmed by a number of new people that people didn't even want. So we needed to have that clear, that family planning, the right to choose the number of your children and the distance between your pregnancies. But of course, you had a Catholic there, or several Catholic, Muslims. Ooh, they were making trouble about saying these things. Analytically, and when we talked about what was necessary and important for the earth and for our future, they knew, they nodded, they agreed. But they couldn't put their name under a report that said the truth. So in the end, I really had to take them one by one and ask them to feel the responsibility for their children's future instead of thinking about the fact that they would have criticism from their own religion. Okay, that was maybe the most difficult part of getting a consensus. But how important wasn't it? Because when the report came, yes, it made a revolutionary impact on several aspects, but also on this one. So when the population conference was coming up in Cairo a few years later, that report that had a consensus document about the importance of family planning and why was essential for getting the results in the Cairo conference. So it illustrates that all that tough work and making all that time to convince people and becoming a team that really had analyzed and agreed on the important issues was essential. The other difficult one, which I may maybe I should skip, but I will mention what it was. It was the place of nuclear energy. Why? Because we could not conclude that nuclear energy was safe. Nuclear energy 
if it had been safe, would have been an important part of the solution for a world that needed energy transition and and getting away from fossil fuel emissions. However, we had people, we had Okita, who was foreign minister, had been foreign minister of Japan, and he would not sign up to the formulations that we had about this. But there we found a phrase that also to him was acceptable. It was, the nuclear energy will only be acceptable if the present problems with the storage of the nuclear material are solved, if that is being solved. He was then ready to sign up to that, which is why we had a conclusion also on nuclear energy that stood for years and was an important part as well. But those are the two difficult things that really required patience and getting to know each of the commissioners so that we felt like a team. In order to get people to team up around something, you need to have a personal connection and sense of trust and then have them to think about, as you said beautifully, about the future generations and unite around that. And also I would ask you about, you mentioned poverty and the social aspects. And in your report, these are integrated. So you were concerned that there would be too much environmental focus and that we will lose the social aspects. And if I take the debate that is going on now, I sometimes feel the same thing. There's a lot of focus on climate change and the environment, but maybe not so much focus on the social right now. Do you get the same feeling? Yes, because... You have to have a holistic approach that people's lives are affected in a way that is acceptable and that moves poor people out of poverty and into decency and a sustainable pattern of life in every country. That is uh, essential. The discussion going on in the process after Paris and the COP27 coming up, it is still the discussion about who is willing and ready to pay more and to secure more financial funding for the investments that are needed to choose a renewable energy choice or a renewable pattern of development, although it could be cheaper short-term to use coal as the source of energy. Somebody has to cover the added cost for developing countries, and certainly the poorest of them, to be able to make that kind of change. And so now, in COP27, there are major problems with regard to the nationally determined commitments. Many countries have not given their next version, which needs to step up their commitments. And now I'm talking both on emissions and on adaptation, and also on loss and damage, which is the last part, which is now being focused a lot from the developing world and certainly from Africa. So they have a challenge, those who are going now to Sharm el-Sheikh, because they have to move on the issues that can help us move towards the necessary solutions with also having social impact into consideration. Because countries that have to pay high interest rates to uh, finance projects that are important. They cannot afford paying 10 or 15% interest in their investments. So we need to have concessionary financing to a greater extent. Also because we know there is no way to 
invest everything that is necessary without the largest involvement by the private sector. And there will never be enough public funding of a direct kind, yes, to a minor extent. But in the large amounts of investments that are needed, most of it will come from the private sector. And the private sector then needs support from the IMF and the World Bank in the systems they have, for instance, or from funds that are set up in the right way to lower the costs for the poorer countries to take this on board. Yes, you're absolutely right. So next year, then it's 40 years ago since you were asked to commission and lead the Brundtland Commission. And then the Brundtland Report came out in 87. And reading through it now, the goal was for the report was that by 2000, we would have reached sustainable development. And now we are in 2022. What's your reflections on the speed of the change? When you think of the requests that we made and recommendations to fundamentally change our economic systems across the world, it's not very strange that 192 countries took some years to agree on what that meant in terms of commitments and agreements of an international nature. When I look at 2015, then it was essential that sustainable development goals had been negotiated after the Rio Plus 20 summit and with my participation in pushing for this because the sustainable development goals now applied to all countries, not only to the developing world. While what we called millennium development goals from the year 2000, they were in the old-fashioned thinking, the rich world, nobody talks about development in the rich world, The whole thing is, how do we help the developing world and ask them to move in the right direction to have the Millennium Development Goals achieved? But the whole debate between countries about who is responsible for climate change had, of course, been going on from the beginning. And we had written in our report that historically, this is in major terms, the responsibility of the rich countries which was true in 1987, it still is true, but not so much as then, because meanwhile, many of these economies have grown to become middle-income countries, and they are growing even more now and are the biggest emitters in the world. But when you look at it on a per-person basis, developing countries still have a point to make. Now, why was it important? Sustainable Development Goals were decided in New York in September of 2015, and it applied to all countries. So when countries assembled in Paris in December that year, an important stopping point between countries had in a way been removed. Now it was clear that also the Paris Agreement could and should apply to every country, not only to the rich countries. And now that didn't mean that the poorer countries would have to commit a large amount, but it meant that in principle, we are in this together. And every country must take responsibility, also the poorest, for the future. And the richer countries will have to participate in helping finance, helping move them forward and help them both on emissions control and on adaptation. That's why it was possible to get the agreement in Paris. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. We would have had a breakdown like we had in Copenhagen in 2009. 
you were so far ahead of your time in your thinking and your proposals and suggestions for how the world was going to get to a more sustainable path. Where are we now in 2022? And what were you hoping we would be in 2022? The shared knowledge base that the report gave and the book that was translated into 60 or 70 different languages and was in every student's shelves. It was part of their curriculum. And people across the world, certainly the elites across the world, knew the situation because the report had the breakthrough it had, which meant that a lot of new initiatives were taken. It happened early on. It happened before Rio. It happened during the 90s and into the next century. A lot of civil society investment, new forms of collaboration to increase the knowledge base and to put pressure on change and on innovation. A lot of this happened. All of these years, there was never a dull moment. You could see that things were moving, although too slowly, They were all the time moving forward and more and more effort put into certainly to alternative energy sources to find out how we can get renewable energy to gradually take over. But it took very long time and only in the last years now have we seen a real increase in, although it's much too low, a real increase in renewable energy. We have had a fossil fuel industry that partly and for many years tried everything they could to counter talk the reality of the world and what we needed to do. It was like the tobacco industry that lied about the situation. A lot of the negative sentiments, for instance, in the US against doing something about climate change came from the fossil fuel parts of it in putting skepticism about research And they succeeded. They kept USA back. And USA being kept back cost the world a lot. So now I'm hoping that we don't get a setback in the US in the next two weeks. Because it's possible that what Biden has now reintroduced the USA into the climate negotiations fully because he has changed the policies in the US. He may get setback if the Republican Party now gets a majority in the U.S. Congress, both in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. We can risk that, which would be terrible. And I'm sure many countries are now, as they look ahead for even for the COP27, wondering about what's going to happen with the U.S. Because if you lose the U.S., then more people will say, why am I stretching and putting a lot of effort into change if one of the largest emitters are not doing it? So they can have excuses to avoid doing what is necessary. What could people unite around in order to shift to something that is a solution? What do you think? What would be the main key? Early on, you had the business roundtable for sustainable development. That came early on, even before Rio. So you had parts of progressive industry understanding the seriousness and wanting to be part of the solution. That was very helpful and important. And gradually, not only the most progressive, but it took time. The most progressive ones pushed, but many were just greenwashing and trying to avoid change. That has also, by the help of civil society, been moved ahead in this century because now there is more 
openness, there is more reporting required from companies. There are more civil society organizations that are looking into the reality of firms. They cannot as easily as they could 15 years ago hide what they are doing from public opinion and public knowledge. So it's absolutely moving ahead. And the finance industry in Glasgow last year went together in a very broad collaboration to look at what they avoid investing in and keeping sustainable development and avoiding climate change as part of their portfolio and the way they work. And so now I was mentioning the World Bank and the IMF. When we had the pandemic, and we still have it, but when that started, I was shocked because I was co-chair of the Global Monitoring Board, and we were pushing to have sufficient investments happening into the gear that people in the health sector needed, masks and frocks and everything they needed to deal with this terrible pandemic. And we found that the World Bank and the IMF did not have mandates to push sufficient money quickly into the world, although it was so badly needed. But we have the same situation now. Ahead of the COP27, there has to be change in the way the World Bank and the IMF work. They have to be able to change their systems, reforming them, so that the world, due to necessary collaboration, can mobilize the necessary concessionary funding to help the private sector innovate and invest in sustainable energy sources. The multilateral system has not developed the way it needed to to support the necessary collaboration across countries, not in the area of sustainable development and climate, nor in the area of uh, pandemics, nor, as we see now, in the nuclear threat area of atomic weapons. The multilateral system is outdated compared to what the world needs in 2022. When I read the chairman's introduction to the report, so what what you wrote, then you comment on some of the decades. You're writing that in the 60s, there were prosperity. Then in the 70s, there started to be more isolation and it it was a call for more multilateralism. And then when you're writing the report, you express the concern around social issues. And I feel that maybe history has repeated itself because in my life, I think the first 10 years after 2000, that was prosperity. And then we've been in a period where I feel there's some more uh, isolation and and the lack of cooperation. And the social issues have also started to come in the shadow of environmental concern. What is needed now in order to propel us in the right direction? The question now is, why have democracies in many parts of the world come under threat from populist pressures in the last 10 years? I would start there because... It leads to an undermining of our multilateral system and lack of support to the UN and all our international institutions that we really depend upon. I mean, it's not only Trump and the US, but it is also other parts of the world, including Brazil with Bolsonaro, Indonesia or Philippines. And it has set back some of the common goals that had been agreed. Even the Paris Agreement in 2015, when that happened, there were fewer 
autocratic types of governments than we have now. So this development is part of the reason why things are being held back. Because we build on consensus in international work. And of course, with lack of enthusiasm for the UN and multilateralism by some strong countries, then how are you able to move forward on the things that bind us together? Because we are in all of this together, whether it's pandemics or climate or nuclear threats. And these are also the three areas where, uh, as part of the elders, are putting our focus. It's on these three major threats and on the multilateralism that is needed to overcome them all. So in a way, we have to fight against undermining of democracies, because that in itself is maybe the most important challenge, because it could go further. I mean, uh, who knows what happens in U.S. in 24? Why do you think we are where we are? Why has this threat to democracy been built up over the last decades? When we had got the internet, the mobile phone, and the ability to share knowledge in a simple way across the world, I and others were enthusiastic about the potential that with increasing knowledge and awareness, the world could move more easily forward. Then we, in the last 10 years, have seen the social media being misused for malignant purposes. And now I'm afraid that social media are a major cause of these changes. It has made it possible for people with bad intentions to use the social media to reach a number of people with wrong messages and undermining scientific facts and pushing an agenda which has no basis. So the social media have made it possible for many who would have been stopped in a normal TV interview to share their completely irrational thoughts. Back in 87, you wrote that the world needed more multilateralism. And what you're saying now is that we have gone a little bit in the wrong direction over the last years. And what we need now is unity. So if we're going to have a common future, it has to start with common, that we, we unify around it. How should we be able to go in that direction? We have to counter the messages going through with uh, conspiratory messages on the social media. And that's not done overnight. But political leaders have to be aware in each of their countries how this can play out and how dangerous it is. So as they meet, I mean, the G20 leaders, they meet and they will be focused on when they come to their delegations, come to Sharm el-Sheikh, because they are 80% of the world economy, and they really more or less decide what happens. So they have a special responsibility for a number of these issues. And artificial intelligence comes in addition then to what I said about social media, because again, it's a big area which is out of public control. What do you think should be the narrative presented at the COP27, for example, in order to unite all the forces? I don't think there is any narrative other than the general conversation we've had here that can all of a sudden convince everybody who comes, you know, the leaders of delegations come with their national preparations and they may have some room for maneuver. And the important thing is then for delegations to look together at where are there some openings where we can take some important steps forward. And I think many delegations 
including the Norwegian one, will come to that meeting with that kind of thought in mind. Where can we move together with a number of countries to make some changes, some steps up the ladder of necessary reforms and making maybe, I think they may make a new fund which have to do with loss and damage. It's not going to solve a major problem, but it will at least show the African and other really poor and affected countries by the climate changes that they are being listened to. So it's an example of where you have to have people moving and finding new ways and new solutions so that things at least move forward. I believe that some good things will probably happen in Sharmil Sheikh because enough leaders are aware of the danger and the drama ahead of us that they realize uh, we cannot drop this. Even if there is a war in Ukraine and there is a lot of problems socially, price, uh, inflation, you cannot look aside from the long-term dangerous trend of climate change while the world is struggling with a number of difficult issues. 35 years ago, when the report came out, you were hopeful and you were optimistic. And fast forward to now, would you say you are more hopeful? I kept my basic optimism over all of these years. Always optimistic that change will happen. And it has happened. Many positive things have happened. But I have to admit that the war in Ukraine has really made me think that my optimism may have been too strong. If you go to two years back, I would not have imagined that Russia would militarily invade a neighboring country. And I'm not alone. This was, I think, a general sentiment because we thought that the Cold War was over in 1989-90. And there has been been reasonably, at least, some collaboration between East and West over those years. But of course, when you look back, I mean, what happened in 2014 was a signal that things were not right when Crimea was attacked and taken. However, this setback in basic assumptions about global collaboration and respect for international law makes one wonder, have I been too optimistic? But then when I have taken that thought and gone through it and asked myself, am I becoming a pessimist? I still end up saying to myself, Pessimism will not lead you anywhere. So even if there are setbacks that make me question my basic optimism, I have to try to re-establish it and say, we move on, we try to overcome the new challenges that are affecting all multilateral collaboration. With a war in Europe, even the work on climate gets affected. So we shall overcome, said uh, Nelson Mandela and and others, and Desmond Tutu, who led us in the elders. Gru, you mentioned the elders, this independent group of global leaders established by Nelson Mandela. What would they as a group most likely, do you think, respond to the question, what does the world need most right now? Collaboration. The world is a complex body of many influencers. But to build up the ability to collaborate and to overcome differences is basic when we, the elders, think about what we have defined as the major existential threats, climate, nuclear threat, and the threat of future pandemics. You know, in all of these areas, we have shown that we have not been good enough to deal with these issues. 
and only collaboration can overcome it. That's so true. And what would be your advice to maybe young people who are about to, you know, make choices in life now and design their life and their work? I have seen young people being um, too concentrated on building a career. What is best for me? What study should I do? What job should I seek? Where can I get the best future career? When I was at Stanford in 2005 for several months, that shocked me how many students came in private conversations with me. And the only thing on their mind was their individual career. So I started saying to them, look, don't think so much about a long-term future. Think about what you can do here and now. Engage yourself in ideas and principles that you believe in, whatever they are, and then try to work with others to make change in the direction of what you want. Then you will find your way and you will see where your knowledge and your energy and your enthusiasm can lead you and how you can contribute to a better future. So this is what I need to say to every young person. If you focus on yourself as an individual and don't get involved with other people and issues that you see are problems in the world around you, then you are losing an important aspect of developing your own personality and learning about where you yourself has the best opportunities and possibilities to help make a difference together with other people. Because we all do things together with others, inspired by others, by helping others, by getting help from others, by collaborating. That's so true and so important. And that's very much sometimes this perspective is exactly missing, especially in uh, elite education places where, in a way, competition is very much rewarded. I think there's more uncertainty among the young people of what they should do with their lives. And I think, you know, people display all their successes online and everything. So it creates this uncertainty that how am I going to be that successful? So I do recognize that there is an uncertainty around it, which is driving young people today. But again, as you say, it also is part of social media and everyone moving around with a phone and uh, not speaking too much to others always. You know, if people don't organize and meet and talk about issues and see what they can do together, then you lose something very important in society. And I've said, you know, you don't need to choose a political party. You can choose an issue, a civil society engagement. You can start something on your own and inspiring others to focus on a common goal of some kind. There are many ways to do it. You don't have to be a politician like me, but there are so many other ways to engage. It is. And I completely agree with you that we need on all levels to collaborate. And I remember when you were prime minister and the political landscape in Norway then, you were collaborating, although it was different parties and across the island and everything. It's just a bit sad that if you look at the political landscape now in many countries, you see what's happened in the UK, even in Norway uh, at times, that we are not able to collaborate well enough on a national level. And then how can you then collaborate on a global level and multinational level? So uh, I feel the lack of cooperation and, and unity on all levels, individual level among the young or on a political level or on an international level, 
So that is one of my worries. And, and, and I agree with you, uh, Gro, that uh, we need this. If we are going to create a common future, we need to r- realize that we are common so that, you know, we it's a unity that needs to happen. And that only happens through collaboration. Yes, I had uh, for many years a one party minority government. But in fact, I was able to pursue the Labour Party's policy in all major areas by seeking collaboration by right or center or left where they supported our ideas. And so that was the way we could do it in those times. But the media were not so every hour of the day over us. Today, the media are also helping push every politician from now from many more parties than we had that time. They have to make a point. They have to say something dramatic in order to be heard. And so you you have this spiral of increased polarization in many ways. And it must be much harder for people to try to understand the essence of what really is needed when you have so many different voices entering the arena every day. There is a, a development of lack of unity where you can have different opinion, but you can also try to collaborate to find some common ground. And uh, there is less of that now in many countries than what used to be the case. And that, I think, is a very, very good uh, summary because I do think common ground we can always find. What we are, uh, a lot of the debate isn't around finding a common ground on things we can agree on. It's debating everything that is not common ground. But not all of that is that relevant. If we rather focus on the minimal things we can agree on and focus on doing that instead of quarreling around what we disagree on, and that might not be as relevant and, and important right now. And I think we would be better off. Thank you so much, Gru. Thank you, Rainier, for a beautiful, valuable conversation, a very important one to have. Thank you. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.